Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas, and I love trees. Way back at the beginning of this year, I was researching the eucalyptus tree, and it was in this research that I learned that eucalypts were also referred to as gum trees. I thought to myself, oh, is this where chewing gum comes from? It turns out, no, it isn't. The name just refers to the sticky, gummy sap that comes from the eucalyptus. But in satisfying my curiosity, I learned that our modern chewing gum was at one point derived from the sap of what are called latex trees. And when I say latex, I do mean the stuff that makes surgical gloves, car tires, and many other forms of rubber. With this in mind, today we're doing a medley on tree-based latex and how trees give us the elastic base for gum, tires, rubber bands, and more. As a kid, between the ages of 9 and 11, I lived in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. One of my friends had a tree in his backyard that you could pull the leaves off of and it would ooze this sticky white sap out of the twig. We called it the glue tree, since we thought the sap looked like glue, but this was very likely a species of tree that produces natural latex. There are thousands of trees and other plants that excrete a kind of sticky white sap, including dandelions, but not all of them are used for the production of latex. There are a few that are used, one of which being a species of fig tree known scientifically as Ficus elastica, but likely the most important species is a tree known as the para rubber tree, in Latin, Hevea brasiliensis. As the name would suggest, these trees are native to Brazil, but also grow throughout much of northern South America and have been introduced to Central America, Central Africa, and Southeast Asia. These trees are deciduous, but because they grow near the equator where there isn't really a traditional winter, they drop their leaves when it gets too dry rather than when it gets too cold. In the wild, the rubber tree gets pretty tall, up to 130 feet or 40 meters tall. But the extraction of its latex sap, the process of which I'll cover in a second, is so intensive that it ends up stunting the growth of the tree. Because of this, most plantation trees only grow to be around 65 feet or 20 meters tall. The flowers are yellow, tiny, and born in clusters. They don't have any petals and aren't showy, but are apparently quite smelly, which is how it ultimately attracts its pollinators. The fruit of the rubber tree is a cluster of papery capsules that, when fully ripe, release their seeds by exploding. If this sounds familiar, that's because I talked about a relative of the rubber tree, called the sandbox tree, in my last Halloween episode that has the same method of reproduction. These trees, as well as the manchineal or beech apple, are all in the spurge family, Euphorbiaceae. The spurge family is massive, home to over 6,000 plant species. Many of the plants in this family are notorious for how dangerous they are, either from toxins in their sap or seeds, or because their dang fruits explode. But some are also extremely useful to humans, like the para rubber tree. Latex is a substance that flows through the bark layer of certain trees, so extracting it doesn't require super intensive surgery. A thin, angled section of outer bark is removed, revealing the inner bark layer. 
Workers make a cut in the inner bark, allowing the white latex to ooze out and down the angled cut and drip into a container that hangs from the tree. Latex oozes rather slowly, so workers will be able to make cuts in around 300 trees before needing to come back and collect the full container from the first tree. The online sources I've seen say the shallowness of the cut makes it so the tree isn't harmed by this harvest method, mainly meaning that this doesn't shorten its lifespan. But considering that harvested trees don't grow as tall as wild trees, and the bark that is removed never grows back, I wouldn't necessarily say that the tree isn't harmed. But also, the concept of harming a tree is kind of an interesting conversation altogether because plants are not animals, and so what constitutes harming something should have a different definition across different kingdoms of life. I don't know, but once you have your latex, the substance can be dried out and mixed with other substances to make the consistency more solid while still elastic and shapeable. There is evidence of latex being extracted and processed into rubber as early as the time of the Olmecs, 2500 to 3500 years ago. There were a number of uses for rubber, but the most recognizable was for a kind of sports ball. The Mesoamerican game where teams try to send a rubber ball through a high-up hoop using primarily their hips is one that has been well incorporated into popular culture with movies like DreamWorks' The Road to El Dorado. But like I said, there were a number of uses for rubber, considering it is resistant to tears, abrasions, and water. Europeans, after colonizing South America, tried to utilize rubber for similar purposes, such as waterproofing. But the substance was still lacking. Its shape and consistency were sensitive to temperature fluctuations, which was an issue faced more commonly in temperate Europe rather than tropical Brazil. But everything changed for rubber when, in 1839, Charles Goodyear accidentally dropped latex and sulfur on a hot stovetop and discovered vulcanization. This process, which was later refined, made rubber stronger and resistant to temperature fluctuations while maintaining the substance's elasticity and other important characteristics. The rubber market steadily grew throughout the 1800s as more and more rubber products were invented, like hoses, rubber bands, rubber sheets, shoe soles, and more. And with the invention of automobiles in the late 1800s, rubber saw a massive boom thanks to tire production. This Brazilian tree, and its sap, was changing the world. But it was especially changing Brazil, for the worse. Tiny jungle towns were turned into cities, receiving electricity grids, roads, and telephone systems before many western municipalities. So-called rubber barons had more money than they knew what to do with, and famously flaunted their wealth in almost competitive ways, like smoking cigars with $100 bills and feeding their horses expensive champagne. And with that massive amount of wealth came massive amounts of inequality and cruelty. For starters, rubber barons acquired immense tracts of land using private armies. This either displaced the indigenous populations living there, or ended up enslaving them for the purpose of inexpensive hard labor. These natives were treated very cruelly and used by the rubber barons for more sinister purposes than just plantation labor. Due to the intensive nature of the working and living conditions, as well as the number of people just being outright killed, these native populations plummeted. One infamous rubber baron, known as Julio Cesar Arano, 
operated a plantation in a Colombian river valley for 12 years. In the span of those 12 years, Arano made over $75 million, roughly $1.7 billion today. While the native population, simultaneously, fell from 30,000 to less than 8,000 in that time. However, the rubber barons made a grave error in their production that would ultimately be their undoing. Tropical rainforests are widely known for their species diversity. One ecological benefit to this mosaic composition is that individual species are more resistant to diseases. Typically, plant diseases only affect a specific species, and if a forest is a thorough mixture of different species, it becomes difficult for those diseases to spread. However, if you have a bunch of trees of the same species in one area, like in a plantation, then diseases can completely take over those whole areas. In the 1800s, this began to happen with a leaf blight that affected the para rubber tree and decimated plantations. Alongside this, Great Britain decided to get in the rubber game and acquired 70,000 rubber tree seeds to set up their own plantations elsewhere. This seed acquisition is apparently still controversial to this day. Brazil alleges that the English stole their crop and caused the demise of this product. Now, Great Britain has stolen a lot of things from a lot of people over the country's history. And yet, Evidence suggests that this acquisition was a formal government-sanctioned trade deal between these two nations, which just makes it sound like Brazil didn't want to own up to their mistakes. Looks like you're off the hook this time, you imperialist Muppets. Unfortunately for the aforementioned Muppets, less than 4% of the seeds actually proved to be viable. Britain took those scant seedlings to South and Southeast Asia and tried to convince farmers there to switch to this crop which they did not want to do. These farmers were already making a killing off of growing tea and coffee and had no idea how to grow rubber. One Malaysian farmer that actually tried to grow the stuff ended up taking out the whole crop because he wasn't told how to extract latex and got confused when the tree produced exploding capsules for fruit and not rubber balls. But finally, in 1895, Successful rubber crops were grown in Southeast Asia, and farmers realized the significant profit to be made from it. The growth of the rubber tree completely switched continents, and by World War II, Brazilian rubber barons controlled less than 2% of the global production. But with World War II, a new challenge arose. The United States had, for decades, imported significant amounts of rubber for the production of tires for automobiles and bikes, and now planes, among so many other products. But now, the United States was at war with Japan, who controlled most of Southeast Asia and its subsequent rubber tree plantations. The U.S. couldn't switch back to Brazil, since the leaf blight still dramatically impacted rubber tree populations there. Our ultimate solution was the creation of a synthetic form of rubber by replacing natural latex with petroleum, otherwise known as crude oil. Not only did this allow the United States to maintain their dire need for rubber supply, it completely changed the rubber market, as synthetic rubber was soon becoming more available and affordable than natural latex. By the 1960s, synthetic rubber made up 75% of the market. But again, the pendulum would swing for the rubber trees. The 1970s gave us the oil embargo, 
which not only doubled the price of petroleum and synthetic rubber, but also led Americans to not want to drive their cars to save money on gas. One invention that came out of this era was the radial tire, which made driving more fuel efficient. But to make radial tires, you absolutely needed natural latex, as synthetic rubber was not as strong a material. And so, the rubber tree once again reclaimed its seat of importance in modern industry. Today, the rubber market is split 50-50 between petroleum-based rubber and natural latex provided by Hevea brasiliensis, the para rubber tree. But with increasing concerns over fossil fuels like petroleum, you have to wonder how this market will continue to change in the future. And amidst all these market-necessitated discoveries, another use was discovered for natural latex related to its elasticity and chewiness. Like with latex, there are numerous trees that have historically produced something that humans use as a form of chewing gum. Usually that something is the tree's sap, like how the sap of the eucalyptus is all gummy and gives us the name gum tree. Historically, the most popular trees whose sap has been chewed on are birches and spruces. Evidence suggests that early Europeans chewed on birch sap for either recreational or medicinal purposes as early as 9,000 years ago. At some point, humans in that region lost their taste for the stuff, but they picked it back up again when they explored North America and found natives over here were still chewing that tree resin. The first attempt to modernize chewing gum came in the 1840s, when a man named John Curtis boiled down spruce resin, cut it into strips, and coated the strips in cornstarch. But people hated it. They said it tasted bad and was too brittle. Apparently, birch tar is tastier, but I haven't tested out the theory to know for sure. The best alternative at the time was strips of paraffin wax, processed petroleum which has historically been used to make candles and crayons. That's right, folks. Our ancestors who built this country with grit and tenacity did so while chewing on crayons. And they didn't have no pansy flavors like bubblegum or mint. They had... Hold on, let me check some crayon color names. They had Atomic Tangerine and Jazzberry Jam. Hold on a second, these sound like incredible gum flavors. Crayola and Trident need to start collaborating. I'm getting distracted. So, paraffin wax was our main chewing gum substance until the 1850s, when chicle was introduced to the modern world. Chicle is a form of natural latex that comes from trees in the Manalcara genus. There's a handful of species that give us this form of natural latex, such as the sapodilla, the balata, and the chicle tree. These trees belong to a tropical plant family known as sapotaceae, so it's interesting that natural latex is something that forms in plants of entirely different groups. These are evergreen jungle trees, primarily found in Central America. They can grow up to 100 feet or 30 meters tall, but just like with the para rubber tree, their plantation height ends up being half that tall or less. They have these cute white bell-shaped flowers, and their fruits are these plum-sized berries that don't explode. 
These fruits are the main economic purpose of these trees in the modern day. Their flavor is apparently rather sweet and malty and is consumed as fresh produce, as flavoring in ice cream, or turned into wine or vinegar. But of course, we are here for the latex, which, like in the rubber tree, is extracted by cutting into the bark. Natural latex is a combination of rubber and resin, as well as water and other compounds. This ratio of rubber to resin varies from species to species and is a main determinant for whether the latex can be used as commercial rubber. Ultimately, the ratio in the chicle tree doesn't really suit that purpose, though some Central American countries do harvest it for the purpose of making rubber anyway. Historically, chicle was used by pre-Columbian Mesoamericans as chewing gum, similar to birch and spruce sap was in northern temperate latitudes but it was introduced to the modern United States for a different purpose. Santa Ana, the Mexican president who led the charge against Texans in the Battle of the Alamo, had been exiled in the mid-1800s. In an attempt to return to power, he brought chicle latex from his home country to the New York inventor Thomas Adams to see if they could turn it into a new form of rubber. As I mentioned, the ratio of rubber to resin in these trees' latex isn't really suited for that purpose, and so ultimately all of their attempts were met with failure. But while Santa Ana pulled out of the project, Adams thought back to the indigenous purpose of chicle, and decided he was tired of chewing crayons. It still took him a number of years to perfect his recipe, but by the end of the 1800s, Latex tree-based chewing gum was sold around the country with a market saturated in competition. In the 1890s, William Wrigley Jr. got America hooked on Juicy Fruit when he employed the marketing campaign of mailing every American in the phone book his product for free. A couple decades later, the chewing gum game changed again when the Fleers Company played with their recipe to make gum softer and able to blow bubbles into, introducing the world to bright pink double bubble bubble gum. These companies, and more, would lead to a massive growth in sapodilla tree plantations until the same latex shortage during World War II that killed America's source of natural rubber occurred. I failed to see how chicle was affected by the shortage, considering that it was grown in Central America and not Southeast Asia, but perhaps the invention of synthetic rubber is what also led to inventing a cheaper synthetic form of chewing gum. Regardless, post-war America woke up to a world where their chewing gum was now made from synthetic polymers instead of a natural, tree-based latex. Trees aren't totally out of the gum picture, though. A common ingredient in chewing gum is still resin, which is sometimes synthetic, but sometimes made from actual tree sap. Some chewing gum companies are also joining the plant-based craze that seems to be spreading throughout the food product industry in an effort to be, or at least present as, more environmentally friendly. And up until recently, we still had Chiclets, which is a brand of gum that may only be recognizable to my older audience. Chiclets, as far as I can tell, have always been made from chicle. It's where the name comes from. Chiclets were officially discontinued in 2016, but apparently they are still floating around in some capacity. There's definitely copycats, but it's doubtful that they are also made from chicle. While chewing gum isn't typically made from trees anymore, it's still worthwhile to check the ingredients list to see if your brand might still be. 
This is something worth doing with any number of food products or materials because you might be surprised by how many things in your life are made from trees. When you think of tree products, it's really easy to think of just wood. But now you can also think about chewing gum or the rubber tires on the cars driving down the road. There's a lot of worry in regards to our world's disappearing forests. And the concern for this idea shouldn't just come from people who like hugging trees or care about where animals live. A changing climate can bring changes to our tree plantations and could ultimately cause shortages and higher prices to these products. There are a number of reasons to love trees and be fascinated by them. But one important reason to really care about them is because of how trees make our lives so convenient and so comfortable. My next episode is going to be celebrating my recent move to the state of Massachusetts. I move a lot. Since I first started working on this podcast over two years ago, I've also lived in Kansas, California, Washington, and Alaska. But I'm going to be here for a while. So in two weeks, I'll be talking about the Massachusetts state tree, the American elm. Elms are beautiful, stately trees that have borne witness to major American events, from the birth of the American Revolution to a tragic terrorist attack in the late 20th century. Join me on November 15th for the tumultuous story of the rise and fall of this forest icon. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. And if you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization, some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug.